this is the Cobain 50 from K- uh, <laughs> I'm like from God. Playing Nirvana. The Cobain 50. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain's top 50 albums. Nirvana. From listener powered KEXP. This is the Cobain 50 from listener powered KEXP. I'm Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. This week, Martin is diving into the album Rock for Life by Bad Brains, which dropped in 1983. The seminal black punk band, which is very timely because we are in the thick of Black History Month. And yeah, like, you know, I mean, aside from the fact that it's the shortest month of the year, it's always nice to have a month to celebrate the pioneers of black culture Black people are the arbiters of culture in America. If you look at the foundations of like pretty much every piece of popular culture that we have, there was a significant black presence. And I think Bad Brains is no exception here when we're talking about hardcore punk, punk in general. And then as the piece gets into metal, reggae, funk. Yeah, one of the most underrated, underappreciated bands like almost use the word foundational. We said we're not going to use that (laughs) word anymore. One of the most pivotal bands in in punk and all the genres you mentioned. So we'll let the piece speak for itself and we'll get into more of it. But yeah, here's Martin on Bad Brains, Rock for Light. Unity, real unity, not just talk about unity. Bad Brains are often regarded as the righteous poets of a punk scene that was rooted in social justice. We're not afraid of the mafia, you know. Fire burn the blood clad mafia. Bad brains are essentially the lodestar for the majority of black punks. But it's hard to lead into a piece about bad brains without acknowledging one historical point first. They are frequently cited as the innovators of hardcore punk music. Here's one such example from the Bad Brains documentary, Abandoned DC. We'll hear several clips from the documentary throughout this episode. Here's the legendary filmmaker Don Letts describing what Bad Brains did for the American punk scene. Bad Brains, man. There's no one else that you can really hold up and say, yes, this is an example of the punk thing having an effect on some some brothers, you know, people that weren't prepared to be defined by their color. Bad Brains are the sex pistols of America. Bad Brains didn't start their journey as punk rockers. Punk rock as we know it today wasn't even a thing when the members of Bad Brains started playing music. Most of them were in funk cover bands prior to making music together. When everybody wanted a piece of the funk. Then, in 1976, Gary Miller, Daryl Jennifer, and brothers Paul and Earl Hudson joined singer Sid McRae to form the jazz fusion band Mind Power. I'd love to describe Mind Power's music to you or add some clips to this section, But if any of their music can be found, it's not available online. What I can tell you is that they were inspired by artists like Chick Corea. And Mahavishnu Orchestra. This style of music had a towering influence in the mid-1970s. That is, until somebody threw something called punk rock through the window. A louder, snottier, younger cousin of rock and roll. 
McCray was enthralled by punk bands imported from the UK, like the Sex Pistols and the Dam. So, McCray introduced punk to the other members of Mind Power. Here's Earl Hudson speaking about one particular band that inspired him and his bandmates to start playing punk music. Sid hipped us to this band called the Dead Boys. We heard the Dead Boys, I was like, yeah, man, that's what we want to try to start doing, you know? Not too long after that, Mind Power transformed into Bad Brains. Here's Daryl Jennifer talking about the name change. We were called Mind Power. And then I found this Ramon song. Bad, bad, brain. bad, bad, brain. bad brains bad, was like mind power was the same thing. Bad, bad, but bad brains reminded me of like your brain being up in the refrigerator, like rotting and some shit. By 1979, bad brains were playing basements, warehouses, and non-traditional spaces all over Washington, D.C. They gained a reputation as one of the most kinetic live bands in the punk scene to the point where the scene was practically being built around them. People were going to Bad Brain shows and getting their minds blown. Included in that scene was a young Henry Rollins, a punk titan whose name you likely recognize thanks to Black Flag. He says he'll never forget when he saw Bad Brains live for the first time. It was the summer of 1979. Word was that there was an all-black punk rock band in Washington, D.C., Never seen one of those before, and they're local? Well, we gotta check that out. Around this period, the lineup was solidified. Earl Hudson on drums, Daryl Jennifer on bass, on guitar was Gary Miller, who started going by the alias Dr. No, spelled K-N-O-W, and McCray was replaced on vocals by Paul Hudson, who went by his now famous stage name, H.R., which stands for human rights. For a few months between 1978 and 1979, Bad Brains worked on a demo at the famous Inner Ear Studios in Arlington, Virginia. This was back when the space was just engineered Donzi and Terrace House. So HR recorded his vocals in the backyard and the rest of the band set up in the basement. If you listen closely during the moments of dead air, you can literally hear crickets. Because of their skill as musicians and exemplifying their growing reputation as the best live band in the DC area, the songs on the demo are airtight. They're played at a frenzied pace an astonishing 16 songs clocking in at just shy of 35 minutes. Music simply wasn't played this fast at the time. In fact, Bad Brains held the Guinness World Record for playing faster than any band on earth. Bad Brains demo would eventually be released as Black Dots in 2006, but before that, it was the stuff of legend in the East Coast punk scene. It was dubbed onto cassettes two, three times over, 
to the point where even if you had a crappy third generation copy recorded by a friend of a friend of a friend, you were holding on to a coveted piece of history. Bad Brains recordings were essentially a document of their raucous live show. During these infamous live shows, HR would jump into the crowd, do backflips on stage, and, along with his bandmates, whip the audience into a frenzy. This was back when the official dance move of punk rock was pogoing, where people would jump in place along to the music. Let's just say it's a polite predecessor of slam dancing. The one or two established music venues in town weren't built for this. Thank you. The famous rumor that has prevailed over the decades is that rock clubs blamed Bad Brains for making audiences too rowdy. They basically said they were causing riots as an excuse to 86 the band from playing their clubs. In retort, Bad Brains wrote one of their most famous songs about this distinction, Band in D.C. The documentary I've been referencing is a clever play on this title, which is actually spelled Band with two N's, as in Banished. Decades later, Daryl Jennifer busted this myth in an interview with Pitchfork. He recounted a story that the Bad Brains played what he called a frat boy club. Kids started dancing while their regular patrons just wanted to watch football and get drunk. The frat boy club in question banned all live music and specifically punk music, even more specifically, punk music played by black people. And that was the motivation behind the classic Bad Brain single, Band in DC. Around 1980, the band moved to New York City and went back and forth between there and their hometown. Ten years later, Dr. No and Daryl Jennifer reflected on their move in the MTV series 120 Minutes. DC's for politicians <laughs> and restaurant owners, really. Um, <laughs> we, we played enough there, you know, we played a lot in Washington. We had a hard time playing down there. We mostly played like basement parties and stuff like that. They so, actually banned us. Yeah. So we went, we said, all right, we'll, we'll go up to New York. We don't want to stop at Philly or Baltimore or something like that. So we just said, all right, we'll go up to New York. What makes the so-called rowdy behavior of audience members at Bad Brain shows so funny is that their songs weren't destructive in any way. In fact, Bad Brain songs are enormously positive and uplifting as a direct response to the nihilism and pessimism of the very punk bands they were inspired by. The band's guiding principle was PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. PMA is kind of a cliche in punk circles now, but it was a pretty radical stance at the time. In 1980, the members of Bad Brains attended a Bob Marley concert and moved from a guiding principle of punk PMA to the ideals of Rastafarianism. Here's Daryl Jennifer talking about bad brains finding themselves as men through Rasta. And the whole influence of Rasta and Africanism and 
who we were as men started to want to take over as opposed to being like lost youths from D.C. kind of on some rock and roll shit. And once we came across Molly and Rasta and the whole vibe and the message that went with that, that's when things started to change seriously for us. Rastafari, or Rastafarianism, is a religion developed in Jamaica in the 1930s. It's tempting to go deep into its history, but for the purposes of expediency, I'll give you the facts. Rastafari uses a specific interpretation of the Christian Bible and refers to God as Jah. But Jah isn't some bearded man living in the clouds. According to Rastafarianism, Jah lives in all of us. Rasta primarily focuses on the African diaspora and commonly refers to Western society as Babylon, a famously oppressive location from the Bible. Some of the finer points of the doctrine include regressive views on gender roles and homosexuality. Some of them are great, though, like the usage of cannabis as a holy sacrament. I offer all that information to say that as young Black men during a long stretch of time where Black people have been marginalized and persecuted, the members of Bad Brains found a lot of guidance in Rastafari. It influenced their music in interesting ways, but it ended up having a negative effect on their standing in the punk scene. Henry Rollins was one of the people who didn't get it at first. What's going on? In come the bad brains and all these new people with them. Here's Julian, very scary Rasta guy. Here's these Rasta women with them. Ian and myself and the rest of the normal gang address them as we always did. Hey, HR. Yes, Henry Mann. Excuse me? All is Irie. Irie? But Daryl Jennifer explains that the band finding themselves through Rastafarianism is no different from when they found themselves through punk. Just like Henry and him can look at you and say, all of a sudden they came back and they was Jamaican. Someone in their family can say all of a sudden they came home from high school and they was Sid Vicious. Before when he left, he was Jimmy Page. The influence began to show up in their music. And because the members of Bad Brains were such skilled musicians before they started playing punk rock, their forays into reggae and dub music were absolutely seamless. They even used the style to create one of their best songs, I and I Survive. By 1982, Bad Brains were living full-time in New York, cultivating yet another local hardcore scene. In February of that year, Bad Brains released their debut studio album exclusively on cassette. It was recorded at 171A Studios in Alphabet City, a New York neighborhood famous at the time for being full of artists, bohemians, punks, and squalor. 171A was a popular spot for punks to record because the fee was only $10 an hour. Among many inhabitants of the space were the Beastie Boys. Here they are talking about 171A Studios. It was like more like an off, 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 off Broadway type theater. You know, something like maybe a world that Adam was more 
familiar with as a thespian. You mean the Yiddish theater. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Beasties also spoke on their collective obsession with that seminal Bad Brains tape. You know, I think that that record just captures the way that they sounded live. The amplifiers were all distorting and the PA was distorting. Everything was kind of like combining together in a certain way. And I think that that really got captured in the four track. Just as legendary as the music was the cassette's cover, which depicted a lightning bolt striking America's own Tower of Babylon, the United States Capitol building. It's a lot like the Ramones logo, which is to say, even if you don't know the music of Bad Brains, you'd probably still recognize this artwork. It's a perfect visual representation of the music. The frontman for the popular new wave band The Cars is probably not high on your list of famous Bad Brains fans. And as a producer, you'd probably better recognize Rick Ocasek as the man behind the boards for Do the Collapse by Guided by Voices or the Blue Album by Weezer. Ocasek also worked with New York punk pioneer Suicide and perhaps most surprisingly, Bad Brain's second full-length, Rock for Light. Here he is in the documentary, Abandoned B.C. You know, at that time, I was kind of like, uh, I was always looking for things like that. A lot of bands that came through Boston, I would try to get them to come into the studio and, you know, do tracks. You know, like Suicide and Romeo Void and whatever was far away from, like, kind of what I was doing. Even for the members of Bad Brains, this was a weird pairing. Here's Daryl Jennifer. Rico Kasich said he had our Royal cassette on his tour bus and would fire him up to go on stage. So we got a hold of us. We played in Boston. I thought it was really cool. I thought it was strange, too, because I didn't really like his band that much. And I was a punker kid. Like, I hated the cars. You know, it was cool to hate the cars if you're in the punk. The majority of Rock for Light consists of re-recorded versions of songs from Bad Brain's self-titled cassette. And while some of the new songs are very inspired, like Riot Squad, more than half the tracks on Rock for Light were already classics. The studio sheen makes the recording sound high quality, and Ocasek's advocacy for great bands outside of the mainstream radar is admirable. But unless you are a staunch audiophile, the definitive versions of these songs were already recorded, released, dubbed on the mixtapes, and shared around endlessly among people with even a remote interest in punk rock. The Beastie Boys agree with this sentiment. Record, and I was thinking, like, why are they having Rick Ocasek produce a Bad Brains record? Like, they just made the most incredible sounding thing at 171A, like, why would they want to go into this, like, fancy studio and make this other thing? And Bad Brain's connection to Kurt Cobain comes, in part, by way of the Melvins, the legendary punk band from Montesano, Washington. According to Michael Azarad's essential Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, not too long after Kurt Cobain failed a tryout for the Melvins, Melvin singer-guitarist Buzz Osborne made Kurt his first punk rock mixtape. Bad Brains wasn't on that mixtape, 
but Kurt would soon find a copy of their second studio album, Rock for Light, and listen to it for days on end. As mixtapes do, Osborne's provided a bridge into punk rock obsession for Kurt. Kurt wasn't the only member of Nirvana who swore by bad brains. Here's Dave Grohl, who grew up in the other Washington, the D.C. metro area. It's the same scene where the brains came up, and they left a mark on Dave in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. There weren't too many kids in the hardcore scene that then that weren't influenced by Rock for Life. You had to have that record. You had to know that record. If you didn't know that record, your other punk rock friends might be a little suspicious. I know every drum lick off of that record, and I have since I was 14. I knew every single one of their songs front to back. And, I, and fr- from listening to Earl. Bad Brains broke up briefly after the release of Rock for Light, the first of many times they would do so over the course of their life as a band. In 1986, they got back together and signed to a renowned punk label in Southern California. Under SST, they released Eye Against Eye, yet another massively influential album. Just like they did when they added reggae to their musical palette, the brains dove into styles like funk and metal. In 2016, Bad Brains received a nomination for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To this day, they have yet to be officially inducted. To be honest, that's a very fitting legacy for one of the most influential punk bands of all time. Canonized, even exalted by the underground, and barely acknowledged by the mainstream. Popular bands like Fishbone and Living Color, and yes, Nirvana too, drew directly from the influence of Bad Brains. From one Washington to the other, Bad Brains paved the way for multiple generations of musicians, spreading their legacy through word of mouth rather than gaining notoriety because of mainstream accolades, which really is the punk rock way. heard my co-host Martin Douglas talking about the album Rock for Light by Bad Brains. Martin, that's an awesome piece as always. You know, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit about your personal relationship with Bad Brains. Uh, you know, when did you start listening to them and, and your any personal connection you have with the music? It's funny because when I was younger, I um, actively avoided Bad Brains because I felt like back then there were only like a few black rock and roll bands and Bad Brains. It was like Bad Brains and Fishbone were the only black punk bands. And every black person I knew who was in the punk liked them. So I felt a little contrarian. Believe it or not, <laughs> I, w- I was a contrarian in my younger age. And so I avoided listening to Bad Brains. And there are a few reasons. One of them is the fact that I don't want to say they were the cliche black punk band, 
but I could see how people would look at themselves and feel like, oh, I'm the cliche black punk rocker because I like bad brains. And that's what I was trying to avoid as a kid. So I actually listened to the Bad Brain self-titled tape for the first time in many, 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 many years in my late 20s. And I was like, oh, man, this is really good. Why was I... (laughs) It's one of those things where, like, you you do something in the matter of general principle, and then you realize that the thing that you're avoiding is so good that this is why people liked them. This is why they were the black punk rock band. So when I re-listened to the first Bad Brains tape, the self-titled tape, with the uh, lightning bolt striking the U.S. Capitol, which, you know, is a whole conversation in in and of itself, especially after uh, January 6, 2021. But uh, (laughs) when I listened to that tape, it brought back a feeling of discovery for me and this strong sense of identity and just great music. And now I'm like a huge Bad Brains fan again. I feel like I've heard you talk about before in in a lot of different contexts, like the burden of being first and like Bad Brains being like, like you said, Sedanos is being like the black punk band from like that era and so foundational. And like, you got to wonder if that weighs on them too. It's like, I mean, it, the music obviously stands up, but I just wonder like that's that's such a heavy thing to put on an artist. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you're first people misinterpret you they kind of project their feelings about who you are onto you because nobody else has done it before they don't have any proper context it's really interesting to read interviews or watch documentaries on bad brains and how they handled growing up as black men in this very white dominated field of music. I feel like innovation for them was commonplace. They always did what nobody else was doing. And that is another sense of how Bad Brains influence is kind of lost on future generations. Like, I think there are a lot of copies of things out there. And now it's easier than ever to copy someone's style. But when Mind Power, the jazz fusion band, transformed into the fastest punk band on earth, there was no precedent for that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about Bad Brains is just how the boldness, like if we're going to play punk, we're going to be the fastest punk band. If we're going to be loud, we're going to be the loudest band. If we're going to bring in reggae or funk or metal into our music, we're going to just do it all the way. Yeah. And the boldness to do that is amazing. And like they could have picked any of those genres and been great at it. But the fact that they fused them all together in this truly remarkable way is just so inspiring. Yeah. I feel like on that documentary, Abandoned DC, one of the band members, I think it was the frontman of Cro-Mags or the guitarist, but he was like, Bad Brains could have been a pop band. They could have gone in this reggae direction and sold millions of records, 
But the fact that they stayed punk is a testament to their integrity. Some people might look at it and be like, oh, punk and reggae are such different things. But that, they're very like close in, in spirit to me. You think about like the sound systems in Jamaica, just blaring the music down the streets and just the DIY spirit of it. Like they clearly saw and felt that connection. And it, it, it's not a tough one to make once you put it down to tape. Absolutely. Speaking of the DIY spirit, you know, we've got to talk about DC punk. Do you have any um, profound like experiences listening to DC punk? Like when you were when you first discovered like, oh, there was a whole scene here. Oh, man. I mean, I think for one, like the Washington to Washington thing, like I always kind of hated DC just being from Washington. <laughs> I was like, we're the real Washington as a kid. Beyond that, I mean, like Ian Mackay, like my minor threat, Fugazi, those bands really like instrumental to me, bad brains for sure. I think the idea of, to me, the idea of this punk movement being in the U S Capitol, that really resonated because, you know, punk was already so anti-authority, anti a lot of different things Mm -hmm. that, uh, the idea of it being right in the thick of it, like outside the white house, outside the Capitol building and speaking up in this way is really, really hit me and made me think about, you know, how do I speak up for the things I care about? How how loud am I going to be? I think it's easier when you have such a physical remove from the people who are in power and in charge of those decisions. And I think it takes a lot of bravery to actively combat those things like you live 10 minutes from the White House. That's why I feel the D.C. scene is so special because they had to be political because they are literally in the shadow of the United States government. Yeah. And thinking about parallels to now, I mean, it's easier than ever to speak up and not leave your house, not leave your room I think that's worth going back to these records and just keeping that in mind of like, am I a keyboard warrior or am I like really about this? Yeah. Uh, An interesting aspect of Bad Brains was recording their second album with Rick Ocasek from The Cars. Like, do you see parallels between Rock for Light and Nevermind in terms of like a big producer coming in and cleaning up their sound, so to speak. Yeah, that did strike me when, when listening to the piece. I, I didn't realize Rick Ocasek did this record. and that, that was super surprising. Such a left field pick for Bad Brains. And also thinking like the first record is one of my favorites. And I would assume that Kurt would gravitate towards that just because it's grittier, more raw, and that seems his taste. But I think that's interesting that he picked this one, um, which has a lot of the songs that we recorded on it, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, there is some sort of Nevermind-esque spirit to it of, yeah, we're a punk band, but we want to present ourselves in the, the best way people hear it. I think it's funny because most of Bad Brain's best stuff have the feeling of their live shows. And I would say their live album, Live at CBGB 1982, is you know, one of my favorite records of theirs, probably even my favorite after the self-titled tape, because there's a feeling that you can't replicate in the studio, especially like a big budget studio 
that Bad Brains did live. You have to capture that feeling of being in the moment of HR doing backflips on stage, of not knowing what's going to happen. And yeah, I mean, to this day, it's sad that I've never seen Bad Brains live because in this era, in the early years, Bad Brains have been exalted as one of the best live bands in the world, if not the best live band in the world. Totally. One thing that is a little more serious that we have to address that I felt didn't really fit the context of the story is Bad Brains incident with the big boys. And for those who don't know, the story basically is that Bad Brains went on tour, I believe it was 1982, and they played a show with a queer punk band. You know, people call them queer core pioneers, the big boys. And the band stayed at the home of one of the members of the big boys. And there was some awkwardness ensued because... Randy Biscuit Turner, the front man of the big boys, came out to HR and there was awkwardness and then awkwardness turns into an actual confrontation. And this is a big point of why a lot of people are turned off to Bad Brains, because this is a time when Bad Brains were heavy into Rastafarianism, which do not have very kind views on homosexuality. And so, rather unfortunately, a few, maybe even a lot, I don't know, I wasn't there, of homophobic slurs came out from members of the Bad Brains. And then the next morning... It comes to a head when members of MDC, who we will cover in a future episode, more or less immediately, comes over and they are allegedly throwing around some racial slurs. And yeah, you know, like it's a it's a really bad situation because. Big boys found HR some weed. I'm not going to quote what HR allegedly left in a note for the big boys for finding them weed, but he didn't give them their money. And this has been, yeah, this has been a controversy that has lasted years and years and years. Some of the members have expressed remorse for this. And we actually have a clip from Abandoned DC where Daryl Jennifer, the basis of the band, addresses the incident and talks about how the members outside of HR, because I don't think HR ever made amends for this, but how some of the members of Bad Brains did express remorse and have grown as humans. For some reason with us, it's like a living legacy. I had to go on the internet and tell them, look, I love all people. We have learned to love all people. We were young too, we, we grew. You know, no one's out to get anybody, you know. But then granted, HR did get off into some weird shit. 
I mean, what <laughs> what can we say about that? Really, what are what are your thoughts? I have, I do have some thoughts. I mean, I think there's a, if you go back to that era of punk rock, and we're gonna get to Zim in the MDC episode as well. It's really easy to look at it, and most of these bands would be quote unquote canceled for a lot of things that they said and did at the time. That's not to excuse it either, but I, I think you have to leave the room for growth the place they were in life. Uh, it, it sounds like big boys and bad brains have been able to sort of move on from this. I don't take it lightly when, when a band expresses remorse and regret. And I think we all have to have room to, to grow ourselves and, and, and improve ourselves. We'll get into this in the MDC episode. There are racial slurs used on that record. And I don't see that being held above MDC as much as this has been held above bad brains. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, you can kind of draw those connections, but I, I think there's a little bit of like, we need to be able to, I don't know, I'm getting the part where I'm speaking for other people, but I, I do think like the band is moving on. They've expressed their regrets and I don't think this should be the defining moment of Bad Brains Legacy. I want to point out an article that I was reading in my research for this and I'd read it a couple of times before, but it really sat with me once I was deep into research on this piece. It's on um, afropunk.com, and it is titled BHM, The Agony and Ecstasy of a Queer Bad Brains Fan. And it's written by Nathan Lee. I don't know Nathan Lee's pronouns, so I am going to refer to them as them. And basically, it's getting into the history of bad brains. It's getting into Nathan's relationship with the band and how, you know, it's hard not to be a fan of Bad Brains when you listen to their music. It's honest in a way that I don't see a lot of when we talk about complicated issues like admiring a band's work that may not have the most salient views as far as people who are different from them. So if you, you know, have a few minutes, it's a very quick read. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Cobain 50 from Listener Powered KEXP. This piece was produced by Martin Douglas. Audio was mixed by Roddy Nickpore. Our podcast manager is Isabel Khalili. Larry Mizell Jr. is our director of editorial. I'm Dusty Henry. And I'm Martin Douglas. We'll see you next week on the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. Oh, and this year, Black History Month is a whole extra day. Wow. So it's 29 days instead of 30 or 31. <laughs> <laughs> on the up and up.